Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, May 30th, 2022. Happy Memorial Day to all those out there celebrating. And of course, we are thinking of those who gave their lives in service of our country and all of our veterans this Memorial Day. As has been the case for the last few weeks while our family is still bonding with our new baby boy i'm excited to bring you part nine of my solving guns project this multi-part series that we're sharing first with our polylog listeners a project i've spent years on the goal to examine every form of gun violence to go deep on the reasons why people own guns in the first place and to find solutions without passing gun control laws. Not because laws are a bad idea or a good idea, but because laws are not solving this issue right now, unfortunately, as we saw so terribly in Texas. And I want to talk a little bit about that today as we get started. But before we do, just a quick reminder, you can find this project with written versions and some videos online at solvingguns.org. I've gotten a little behind in posting the written versions on there, so please be a little patient. But All of what I say here will eventually appear there. At that location, you can also find and access the 2,000-plus pages of facts and statistics that I leaned on for this project. So, as I mentioned, this is Part 9, and we have been talking about reducing mass shootings for the last few weeks. There's a lot more to talk about, but I'm going to step out of line, out of the general order of everything here, to jump ahead to a section on police procedure, because that is something that is top of mind after the massacre and the tragedy that happened in Texas this week, police procedure. So let's go ahead and get started here and talk about things that can be changed when it comes to police procedure that can reduce the deadliness of these awful, awful mass shootings. So let's begin. At the beginning, we talked about taking a look at the FBI's database of all active shooter incidents, trying to understand some data around that, some facts and insights from that database. And one of the things that I did was I took the frequency of incidents and I tracked it by the number of people killed, essentially trying to find out how many people are killed most of the time when an active shooter incident takes place. And if you remember from that discussion, most of the time when someone takes a gun out and starts shooting in public, only one person is killed. That's most of the incidents. After that, the second most likely outcome is that no people are killed. Now, that's not saying that no people are injured, but the second most likely possibility of an active shooter incident is that no people are killed. The next most likely is that two people are killed, then three, then four, then five, and so on and so forth. The graph drops off quite dramatically, and most of those shooting incidents... The majority of them kill far, far fewer than six or seven people. And yet, if you look at this graph, there are outliers on the graph. Probably about four 
or five that are over the 20 number threshold. And it's kind of odd to look at those four or five spread out, some of them going as high as in the range of 50 people killed in one incident. How is it possible? What is going on here? Why are these outliers outliers? What is the dividing line between most of the incidents that just claim a few lives and those that claim so many? What makes an incident deadlier than average? The answer is a little bit in the planning and preparation of the shooter, sure, but in all my research, the real dividing line is time. The most deadly shootings are made deadly because of the amount of time they were allowed to go on. The difference between two minutes and two hours is way more determinant of a high death toll than the difference between a handgun and an assault rifle. For example, the shooting at a church in Moscow, Idaho in 2007 took place with two rifles. It ended with three killed. The shooting at a church in Brookfield, Wisconsin in 2005 took place just with a single handgun, but it claimed seven lives. Even though assault rifles can fire more rounds, more time is way more deadly than more firepower. So, one of the most effective ways to reduce the deadliness of mass shootings is to resolve them quickly. And that's the job of first responders, namely the police. So let's look at the police. First, we're going to talk a little bit about something called threat assessment teams. Ever seen the movie Minority Report? In it, we see a future where murder can be predicted to near total accuracy. So the government can lock up would-be murderers before they commit the act of murder, saving lives in the process. Of course, there's a giant ethical hole in this plan. How do you lock people up before they've done anything wrong? In the real world, we don't have total accuracy, not even the near total accuracy in the movie Minority Report. But police use predictive modeling all the time to reduce crime rates. If a series of muggings are taking place under a bridge, there's a pretty good chance another one might happen under that same bridge. So by stationing a police officer under the bridge, the police can stop a mugging from happening, or catch one in the process. Simple enough. Of course, prediction gets more complicated than that with heat maps and real-time monitoring, but the goal is simple. Crime prevention rather than crime cleanup, right? The police aren't waiting for another call about a mugging under a bridge. They're actually trying to get there and stop it before it happens. Today, we can't predict exactly where an active shooter incident is going to take place, but law enforcement is getting better and better at predicting who an active shooter might be. The people doing the prediction are called threat assessment teams, and they exist all over the place. They can be local to a school system, a university, a city, or a state. And their goal is to do just that, identify individuals who are at high risk of posing a threat to others and stepping in. Now, they don't lock these people behind bars or, in the case of Minority Report, in creepy vats of suspended animation. Instead, threat assessment teams intervene in their lives, the lives of these possible threats, providing education, support, counseling, and access to other social services that might diffuse the situation before it blows up. They work with an individual's friends, family, and environment to reshape the circumstances and hopefully rewrite the future. And they've achieved success. The Department of Justice estimated 
that more than 150 attacks have been prevented in a single year alone because of threat assessment teams. But there's a problem. Some of the deadliest shooters in our data set had already been identified by threat assessment teams, but they'd fallen through the cracks. That's more than 100 people shot or killed just in those shootings because somebody dropped the ball. What the hell happened? How could these teams fail so profoundly? The answer is that in some way, they didn't fail. Because these threat assessment teams were tasked not with stopping threats by individuals in their area, they were tasked with stopping threats to their area. The moment that these dangerous individuals left the area that the threat assessment team focused on, then those dangerous individuals were no longer a threat to that area. And they were no longer a concern to the mission of those teams. So let's get some specifics here. The team at the University of Colorado Denver, they can count it as a success that the shooter who ultimately shot 70 in an Aurora movie theater didn't do so on the campus of the University of Colorado Denver. And the threat assessment team at Pima Community College can count it as a success that the shooter who ultimately shot 19 people, including Representative Gabrielle Giffords, at a Tucson, Arizona grocery store, didn't carry out that shooting on the campus of Pima Community College. The campuses were just fine, but the individual who had once threatened that location went on to terrorize another location. And nothing stopped that individual from carrying out that threat. This is unacceptable. We need to change the paradigm here. A team that identifies a threat is at that moment responsible for that threat, no matter where the individual goes. Responsible means not letting the ball drop when that individual moves or engages with a different institution. Responsible means not only deflecting threats to other locations or situations, it means completely diffusing those threats. The team cannot rest until the individual poses no threat to anyone, or they are convinced, the team, that the threat has been transitioned completely to a new threat assessment team, that there has been a real handoff. Yes, threat assessment teams need to work together more to share information, collaborate, and identify best practices. They also need to have built-in mechanisms for sharing resources so that when needed, they can call on the expertise, intelligence, and even manpower of other teams to stop a threat in its tracks. How do we do this, though? Change the way that threat assessment teams operate. Now, there are a few options for this. Since these teams are often privately operated, one way to make them take greater responsibility is to try to hold them legally responsible. Victims' families can and should use the legal system to sue organizations that knowingly allowed a threatening individual to march out of their care and into the public square. We can contact threat assessment teams nationwide and try to organize them into an association aimed at just those things we talked about, information sharing, collaboration, and teamwork. This could be achieved by getting just a few of the largest and most influential teams on board to create an organization that is dedicated to ensuring that no threats fall through the cracks. We can also build a solid case for reform and try to get those at the FBI and other existing law enforcement agencies to pressure these threat assessment teams into greater cooperation. 
the FBI already has a counterterrorism center. What about a centralized threat assessment center? One whose goal is just this, prevent mass shootings on a massive scale. Yes, there are surprises. Those shooters who seem to come out of nowhere. But too many of the deadliest shooters came right out of a threat assessment file. The threat was assessed and not diffused, just displaced. This trend must stop. It's unconscionable. And it's such a missed opportunity to stop mass shootings before they even start. Of course, prediction is only as good as the intelligence that you can gather. To know a person could be dangerous is one thing. But if you know an actual active shooting is about to take place, how could you not speak up? How could you not say anything to try to stop it? Well, it happens all the time, actually. In a 2014 study published in the Journal of Threat Assessment and Management, researchers found that in 81% of all U.S. school shootings, at least one person unconnected to the shooting knew about the plot. They just never spoke up. We need to make it easier for these people to say something to stop it. Why don't they speak up? A few reasons. There's the big reason, and then there are a million small ones. The big reason first, loyalty. Usually a good thing, right? Most people, most groups, loyalty is the highest virtue. And for good reason. It encourages teamwork, it discourages selfishness, and helps to build a more cooperative world. The problem is that loyalty also stops people from speaking up and speaking out. It's the strongest block to whistleblowing. In a study published in Current Opinion in Psychology, researchers found that loyalty stands in direct opposition to another moral value, fairness. What's fascinating here is that the researchers were able to change whether a participant blew the whistle based on whether the researchers primed the person to think about fairness or loyalty. This suggests that there are ways that we can help encourage more people to speak up when they think a shooting might take place. People who are more independent and who have what the researchers called a proactive personality are more likely to speak up. These are people who feel more in control of their lives and their world. It could be those with greater power within an organization, like a leadership role or a senior position at a company. Or it could simply be extroverts or people who are nonconformist in their thinking. Obviously, we can't make everyone everywhere a leader who would follow, but this aligns well with the changes to education we talked about, making people feel more in control of their lives, particularly in school. And it could give them the confidence to feel that they can take control of a potentially dangerous situation by speaking up. Organizations like schools and businesses can create a safe culture where speaking up is seen as the ultimate act of loyalty to the safety of the whole group, not an act of betrayal to a single person. Blowing the whistle on someone feels like a leap off the high diving board. Easy to imagine from the ground, but hard to do when you're standing high over the water. The researchers found that most participants said they'd blow the whistle on an unethical request if they received it. But when they did receive the request, fewer than 10% blew the whistle. As the researchers say, quote, In the moment, norms favoring obedience to authority and maintaining group loyalty become more difficult to subvert, end quote. We can make this easier by making it more anonymous and just easier. Right now, in most places, you have to pick up the phone, dial 911, and tell someone about the suspicious activity. 
But a study of 911 usage shows that those 18 to 34 years old are 12% less likely than older adults to pick up the phone and dial 911 to report suspicious activity. So again, building a system of reporting that allows for other lines of communication, like text messaging, can make a huge difference. Today, more than 8 in 10 police departments have Facebook pages, but it's unclear whether and to what extent they monitor public and private messaging through that platform. We need to make this 10 out of 10 and remind students and residents that they can reach police this way or through other social media platforms just as reliably as they can by calling 911. The problem here is that social media is by its very nature social, and it defaults to being public, not private. That's an issue when people feel that speaking up betrays their loyalty. This is particularly pronounced among young people. In a study by the Department of Homeland Security, nearly half of those aged 18 to 34 said that a top barrier to reporting suspicious activity is fear of retaliation. As one respondent said, whenever police are called, quote, they respond with flashing lights and sirens blaring, and everyone in the neighborhood would know who reported the activity, end quote. There are three ways we could solve this. Make reporting as anonymous as possible, like an untraceable text message to 911. Make sure police response is discreet, and make sure people know that it can be discreet. By far, the greatest barrier to reporting that the Department of Homeland Security uncovered has nothing to do with technology. It's concerned that by speaking up, you might get an innocent person in trouble. After all, if a close friend, a colleague, or a family member make a threat of violence, how do you know when it's just blowing off steam and when it's a real threat? Way more people say violent things than actually do violent things. According to research by evolutionary psychologist David Buss, 90% of men fantasize in a detailed way about murder at one point in their lives. That's a pretty scary statistic. But the thing is, a man's chance of actually committing murder in his lifetime is less than one-half of one percent. If everyone who had a violent thought was locked up, well, we'd have way more men in prison than out of it. But calling or texting or messaging a tip about a threat of violence doesn't lock up your friend, it just raises the issue so that the right course of action can be determined, so that trained professionals can look at the whole picture and stop the worst-case scenario from ever happening and let the innocent go. How do we convince people that tipping off a potentially dangerous situation won't get someone who's innocent in trouble? A few ideas. Demonstrate the process through yearly drills. Police or security personnel should walk people through a security drill. It can show them the life cycle of a tip, from the moment and method that someone uses to report it, to the investigation that's triggered, and the ultimate and safe resolution for all parties. They could even make it clear that everyone in their lifetime will need to call in a tip on something at some point. So this is 100% useful information. This could potentially be more effective than the active shooter drills that help people learn how to hide from a danger already in progress. Instead, this tip process could empower people to speak up before a danger is active. In the real world, there are more tips than there are active shooter incidents, so it's also more relevant. Another thing we could do is help show people that there's a greater harm done when you don't report something that could actually really be dangerous. This means publishing and making it widely known when someone failed to report a dangerous shooting plan. And of course, to do all of this, we need to increase trust and partnership with police. 
This is a much, much, much bigger issue than the question of tip lines. But nearly a quarter of Americans surveyed said that they may not report suspicious activity because of fear or mistrust of law enforcement. It would be great if we could solve the trust issue with law enforcement, but the easiest solution here is to subvert law enforcement altogether. If someone in a high school knows of a threat, they shouldn't need to call the police. Let them call a trusted teacher or administrator. Let them tell their coach. If someone in a company knows a coworker who might be planning something, they shouldn't need to call the police. Let them tell a boss or someone who works in human resources. And if someone in a family knows an uncle or cousin who might be planning something, they shouldn't need to call the police. Let them call a hospital or doctor or tell a government worker like their congressperson or the office of the mayor. We can empower people at these places to know what to do, to pass on tips and information to the right authorities in a fast and trusted way. Leaders at schools, leaders at businesses, and public institutions like healthcare workers and the offices of elected officials should know all of them should be trusted ambassadors for safety. We just need to make sure that they know what to do when told this sort of information. And we need to make it widely known that if you think a shooting might take place, sure, you can call the police if you trust them, but if you don't, tell these other people that you do trust. Just imagine, if we can get just half of the people who know of a threat to speak up, we could reduce school shootings by 40%. And if schools are a good proxy for the rest of active shootings, then by getting just half of the people to speak up, we could have stopped as many as 85 shootings in the last 15 years and prevented 570 people from becoming victims. Let's make the next 15 years better than the last. Let's help people speak up in every way, in any way, that feels right to them. But the moment a gun is fired, the moment the police are called, what then? Well, let's step for a moment into the police's shoes. And it makes sense, actually, to take just a split second to talk about the shoes. The shoes aren't shoes, they're boots, actually, made of synthetic leather, thick at the sole, black and shiny, with buckles instead of laces for fast response. Fast is important to police, but so is accurate. The moment you receive the call that there's been a shooting, the number is a 1010, that's the code, you leap into action. You go in your Chevy Tahoe or Silverado or Impala or anything else ever made by Chevy. But what do you expect when you get there if you're a police officer? What do you know as you race to the scene, alarm blaring, lights spinning? Well, you know what came through on that radio. Shots fired with a shooter still active on location at a high school or a college campus, a factory or a parking lot. You know that. And you know everything you've experienced before. Drug deals, robberies, domestic abuse, gang bangs, traffic stops, homeless issues. Probably not active shooting incidents. And almost certainly not a mass public shooting. But we, collectively, we know more than what came through on that radio. We know what's happened before. We have every mass shooting that's ever occurred behind us. We have, just right here in the last 15 years, we have 9,000 discrete little data points full of trend lines and models and statistics. Let's use them. The moment an active shooting takes place, let's feed that data into the database and spit out some expectations for the first police responders to go on. If the shooting's at a high school, you can expect this. If it's a place of higher education, you can expect this. If it's a plastics manufacturer, you can expect this. 
At one point while I was working on this project, I heard that there was a shooting at an elementary school. I knew instantly that it probably wasn't a student shooter, because in all of the FBI data that had been published up to that point, there had never been an elementary school shooter behind an active shooting incident. It was more likely to be adults. And you know what? When all the facts came in, it turned out that it was adults. But how many people read those first headlines and built an image of an elementary school student with a gun? The database I'm talking about, this type of framing information, could help law enforcement agents understand what might happen, and it could prepare them for what could go wrong. The predictive model could be smart. If all you have is time of year, you get data based on that. If all you have is time of year and location, well, here are stats on that. Location and age, here's what to expect. The more data is entered, the smarter and more accurate the system becomes. They could even recognize long-term trends, like a decrease in shootings at one location over another, and build that into its predictions. A tool like this could make the difference between looking for a child shooter and looking for an adult, or the difference between waiting for a hostage situation to resolve itself and stopping it swiftly. The data already exists out there, so building the database wouldn't take too much work. Sure, the FBI could create a tool like this, but it would just but it would be just as easy for a nonprofit like Everytown for Gun Safety or an industry association like the International Association of Chiefs of Police or even, yes, the NRA to maintain it and make it readily available to all law enforcement personnel. Because it's something everyone, no matter their politics, can agree on. Helping first responders take more informed first steps in protecting the public from active shootings is a good idea. Let's take a step back for just a minute. Back in the 1970s, it used to pay to hijack an airliner. A few guys with guns would take control of a plane, radio the police, and make their demands. Between 1968 and 1972, there were more than 130 airplane hijackings in the United States. Nearly all of them ended without a single life lost. The police negotiated for the passengers, and the hijackers made demands for millions, and often a flight to Cuba. The practice was still so jokingly easy that the show Seinfeld made a joke out of it back in the 90s. All of that changed, of course, just four years after that episode of Seinfeld aired, when four crews of hijackers took control of airliners with no demands, no exotic diversions, and no intention of ever landing again. But the thinking, the idea that this was just another hostage situation, it still informed the thinking of key decision makers on 9-11. We're not used to dealing with people who, the only thing they want from us, is our death. Maximum death and destruction. With that kind of person, the strategy has to be very different. Because every minute that a person like that is allowed to continue is a minute more for them to inflict more death and destruction. This lesson, unfortunately, it's had to be learned again and again and again at a gruesome cost. Russia, 2002. Chechen rebels take control of a theater with machine guns and military-grade weapons. They take 850 hostages, and the authorities wait. For three days, the police negotiate, hoping to end the standoff, to save lives. But every minute they give up is a minute longer for the rebels to kill. And the rebels kill. The ultimate death toll? 170 killed. That dwarfs the mass public shootings in the United States, including the second deadliest shooting, which had pretty much the same depressing story. 
Orlando, 2016. A man takes control of a nightclub with assault rifles and body armor. Hundreds of hostages are taken, and the authorities retreat. They give up ground, and they negotiate, hoping to end the standoff, to save lives. But every minute they give up is a minute longer for the shooter to kill. And he kills. He kills while negotiation is drawn out, before police finally raid the place. Ultimately, 49 people are killed. Why? The most dangerous weapon in the hands of a mass shooter isn't an assault rifle or a machine gun. It is time. And the more time police give, knowingly give up to a shooter, the more people the shooter can kill. If we want to stop the next Pulse nightclub from happening, we have to stop police from ever treating an active shooter incident like a hostage situation. Engage, engage, engage. Police must engage shooters relentlessly and without pause. If a gun has been fired, negotiation is no longer an option. Hostage situations that occur after a gun has been fired are not hostage situations. They are ploys by the shooter to buy time for more killing. Engage. Don't retreat and give up ground. Engage, engage, engage. The faster police can end a shooting, the safer everyone will be. But negotiation has ended exactly zero active shooter incidents in the last 15 years. Sure, there have been surrenders. There have been people who give up. Shooters who shoot themselves. Many of those, actually. And a few that tried to get away. But not a single active shooting incident in the FBI's 15-year history that we're looking at. Not a single one has taken hostages and turned those hostages over to police in a negotiation. There is no negotiating with active shooters. There is only stopping them. Police across the country should adopt, must adopt, a strict don't-negotiate policy surrounding active shooters. Industry associations should be the perfect vehicle for getting this information out to the right chiefs, sheriffs, deputies, and agents. The more we learn about the shooting that took place last week in Texas, the more we learn that the police in that situation did not engage. And we have all seen the consequences, the infuriating consequences. There's no excuse for any police force in the country right now to fail to engage after everything that we've learned through all of these years of dealing with active shooting incidents. But that doesn't mean there aren't tools and technologies that can be deployed to make that engagement easier and safer. For example, if a shooter is holding hostages, how do the police determine who to target? How do they avoid blasting through a door that has hostages standing right in front of it? Well, one thing that can be used is the smartphone. In hostage situations, in any situation really, the police have direct access to the best intelligence in the world, the people in the room. With photos, video, texting, and audio, every smartphone is a window into the situation. But there's a problem. If you're trapped with a shooter on the loose, how do you get those photos and videos and audio, the live intelligence, to the police and the first responders? I mean, I know how to dial 911, but can I upload live video to 911? Can I stream it the way I can live stream to Facebook or Twitter or any number of other apps these days? The answer is no. When the Pulse nightclub shooting took place, hostages uploaded those videos and audio, that intelligence, to Facebook. The problem? 
by broadcasting it to the public, the shooter could see it. And he did. He actually used that intelligence against the hostages to root out and target more of them. That's the opposite of how this should work. Which is why every single police department in the country needs to work with every cell phone carrier and every smartphone maker in the country to immediately launch a new 911 system. Immediately. Something like this has been in the works since as early as the year 2000. They call it Next Generation 911. But it's been generations since that launch, and still, most regions don't have the system today's world demands. A system that can accept not just breathless calls, but text messages, photos, screenshots, video, and even live streaming. The system that we need goes even further than that. We need a system where you could even have an option to share your location, so that if you wanted to, you could let first responders know exactly where you're standing. Police could then have a live sense of where people are when they break down the door or sweep in with help. We could even go one step further. Police could send out a geofenced alert. That is, an alert that is limited just to the area of a shooting. Something that pops up on everyone's phone, informs them of the active shooting event, and invites them to share their location and an open conversation to share video, audio, and messages with first responders. This could be triggered by police on the scene or by dispatchers responding to the first reports of a shooting. The technology is already there for all of this. We have the cameras and equipment in our pockets. We have the radio transmitters. We have ways to live stream video and audio. We have GPS. And we even have a phone number that every person in the United States knows by heart. 911. Oh, and if a shooting is happening where there's bad cell phone coverage, then first responders can add a tool to their toolkit. A portable cell tower, like the ones you set up for concerts and parades, to keep that critical lifeline of critical multimedia information flowing. For especially hardened locations, they could plug it directly into the wiring of the building, turning every wall with electrical power into an antenna. This is real technology that actually exists. And this type of real-time communications, coordination, and live data collection and dissemination, this is what's possible in the 21st century. This is what we have to demand from our law enforcement. It's time we started using what's right in front of us, not only to stay connected to the world, but to work together and, even in the deadliest crises, to stand strong. So there's, of course, a lot more to talk about when it comes to mass public shootings. There are whole sections that I'm excited to share in the future about the media, how the media portrays mass public shootings, and about security and making spaces safer. But I thought it was important to take a moment to jump ahead to talk a bit about the police response, which was unacceptable. Thank you for taking a moment to share your Memorial Day with Polylog. In the meantime, of course, you can learn more at solvingguns.org. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at bstitle. You can tweet at Naomi at sotonaomi underscore. And you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. And we'll talk with you again next week.